give thanks to the Lord, call on God's name, make known God's deeds among the people. The people of Israel asked, and the Lord brought quails and gave them food from heaven in abundance. Eternal God, creator of all that is and all that will ever be, you are the giver of all life and the source of all good. We abide in your love and rest in the fullness of your grace. Therefore, we thank you and we praise you, O source of all our blessings, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If we say that we have no sin, the truth is not in us, and we deceive only ourselves. 
but the very same Bible that offers us this word of conviction also offers us this word of assurance that God, who is merciful and just, stands always ready to cleanse us of any unrighteousness. So let us confess together our sins, first in the prayer in your bulletin, and following that in a time of silence as we make more candid our confession before our God who has made us, who knows us, and who loves us. Let us pray. Creating and abiding God, you molded us and formed us. You breathed the breath of life into us. You walked alongside us and brought us out of many empty and uncertain places. And yet we so regularly forget all that you have done for us. We admit that it is easy to get caught up in a gospel of scarcity that the world preaches, to look past the abundance in our lives and to bitterly demand more. Forgive us our insatiable longing for more and grant us your peace. Remind us again that we do not follow a God of production, but rather a God of enough. Move within us to tear down oppressive systems that measure our humanity in terms of usefulness and reunite us with one another this day. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. position to condemn only Christ, and Christ died for us, Christ rose for us, Christ reigns in power for us, Christ prays for us. So let us believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
Our epistle lesson today is taken from the book of Philippians, the first chapter, reading from verse 21 to 30. Listen to the word of God to us this day. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which I prefer. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in faith, so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ when I come to you again. Only Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, and are in no way intimidated by your opponents. For them, this is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation. And this is God's doing, for he has graciously granted you the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well, since you are having the same struggle that you saw that I have, and now hear that I still have. Our second reading comes to us from the Gospel according to Matthew. We read in the 20th chapter, the first 16 verses. Continue to listen for God's word. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went about nine o'clock, he saw others still standing in the marketplace idle. And he said to them, you also go to the vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon, and about three o'clock he did the same. And about five o'clock he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, Call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I wish with what belongs to me? Or are you envious?
because I am generous. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. May God bless to our hearing and our understanding this reading of God's holy word. final scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 16, verses 2 through 15. Listen for God's word for you. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread— For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. When the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way, I will test them whether they will follow my instruction or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your complaining against the Lord. For what are we that you complain against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and your fill of bread in the morning, because the Lord has heard the complaining that you utter against him, what are we? Your complaining is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the Israelites, Draw near to the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the Israelites, they looked toward the wilderness, and the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, I have heard the complaining of the Israelites. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening came upon them quails covering the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew on the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there was on the surface of the wilderness a fine flaky substance, as fine as the frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is the word of the Lord.
sacredness of this place, O oh God, we ask you to quiet every voice within us except your own and startle us with your truth. God, we offer these prayers in the name of your child, Jesus. Amen. I'm not saying that the ancient Israelites were a model faith community, but I feel like they get a bit of a bad rap in the book of Exodus. Yes, at times they seem to compose themselves like whiny toddlers on a long car ride, constantly complaining and bickering along the way. Dad, I'm hungry. Mom, I'm bored. Dad, he pinched me. Mom, the flesh pots were better in Egypt. And yes, this murmuring motif comes after one chapter, after they were just singing and dancing with tambourines in celebration of God's decisive victory over Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. Truly, you'd think after witnessing those ten nature-defying plagues only a few weeks before, that the Israelites could have trusted God to provide them with food and water in their present situation. And yes, our passage for today mentions the Israelites complaining no fewer than seven times, so perhaps they were laying their concerns on a little too thick for God's liking. But I just, I just think that they had a point. You know, like, hear me out. There was no food in the desert. There was no water. They hadn't yet arrived at their intended destinations, and they wouldn't for decades to come. And for all of the Lord's impressive show of strength in Egypt, what did it matter if God was just going to let them starve out here in the wilderness? What was the point of that? I suppose I empathize with the ancient Israelites in this story because I imagine that I would have been one of those outspoken grumblers in the ancient Israelite camp, regularly gifting Moses with little suggestions on how to improve the wilderness experience. I seem to possess the kind of um, anti-superpower where I can walk into any situation and immediately recognize what could be better. I don't exactly know how to make it better, but I know that it could be better and it should be better. It's like the opposite of a strengths finder, a weakness finder, a love language of complaint, a fun symptom of my more perfectionistic tendencies that is potentially helpful, but mostly annoying. Perhaps some of you here can relate. But I also imagine that the Israelites complaining wasn't solely the result of a few well-meaning but squeaky wheels. I imagine that their excessive grumbling was an indicator of a larger cultural issue. See, the Israelites had lived under an oppressive regime of ceaseless work and production for so long that I imagine that they could no longer find contentment or satisfaction in anything. For generations, the pharaohs had afflicted the Israelite people with their insatiable demand for more, more bricks, more supplies, more labor, as well as their relentless need to be bigger and better and more powerful than the rest. They shaped Egypt's socioeconomic system like a pyramid, with the workforce producing wealth that flowed upward towards the elite and away from the workers at the bottom. There was no rest, no contentment, no good enoughness in ancient Egypt. Not for the Israelites who were forced to gather straw in their time off, and not even for Pharaoh 
who had to work day and night to stay atop the pyramid because it was frantic and anxious, pro anxious productivity that drove this entire system. The Lord may have drove the Israelites out of Egypt with a mighty hand, but the Lord could not easily drive Egypt out of their minds. It would take time to reorient the Israelites' thinking. It would take practice to get to them to realize that they no longer served the gods of Egypt, the gods of ceaseless production. They now served the God of Israel, the God of rest, of Sabbath, of liberation, of jubilee, the God of enough. It is in this liminal space after the Israelites leave Egypt, but before they arrive at Mount Sinai, that the Lord attempts to lo loosen this relentless grip that the Moor mentality has on them. The Lord tells Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. And in this way, I will test them which does not exactly mean that God will tempt them or examine them, but maybe more that God will try out, do a little practice run of this whole trusting in God's provision thing. Even before giving the Israelites the Sabbath commandment, the Lord here spoon-feeds them the practice of accepting enough, of putting down your work each day and trusting that the sun will arise tomorrow even without your extra toil. It seems reasonable that God could have addressed the Israelites' hunger by perhaps leading them to an oasis in the desert, or by moving a neighboring tribe to offer them hospitality, or even by just, you know, directly putting them in the land of milk and honey. But instead, God opts to immerse them in this sacred practice of accepting enough while traveling in the unsafe and uncertain wilderness. Later in the chapter, God commands the Israelites, saying, Gather as much of the manna as you each need, an omer per person, which is about two quarts. Some of the Israelites gathered more, some gathered less, but when they measured it, no one had anything more or less than an omer. Their work could not move the dial. And then Moses tells them to not leave any of the manna substance over till morning, but the Israelites, quite reasonably, quite rationally, they attempt to save some of their manna for the next day, only to discover that it, it has become wormy and rotten. Then Moses tells them to gather twice as much food on the sixth day and to not go out searching for food on the Sabbath, and the Israelites again, quite reasonably, quite rationally, go out on the Sabbath and attempt to gather manna, only to discover that there is no food to be found. I am certain that it took some people weeks and months and even years to trust that the manna would be there in the morning. And I am certain that even after being in the desert for decades, the people would still attempt to stockpile their food from time to time. Just how I don't really fault the Israelites for complaining, I understand why they would want to secure a competitive advantage in the wilderness in this uncertain place. Trusting that God will give us enough goes against our every instinct for survival, and believing that we are deserving of enough is counter to how much of the world operates. 
And look, we could attempt to boil this Bible story down into some trite, generalized nicety like, be grateful for what you have, or don't be greedy, or God will supply your every need. But the truth is, believing in the enoughness of God is much more complicated and demanding than that. Believing in the God of enough is a tall order in our world today, where the gods of scarcity and competition, the gods of frantic productivity and perpetual market growth so regularly reign supreme. We are perpetually bombarded with these belittling messages that we don't have enough. Enough money, enough space, enough credentials, enough time, enough experience, enough status to make it in this world. And so we try to stuff our already busy lives with more and more activities and connections and degrees and physical items so that we can somehow claw our way into feeling like enough. It's a difficult thing to stop worshiping at the altar of more. In my senior high school yearbook, they had to actually create a smaller font next to my name to cram in all of the clubs and sports and committees that I've been a part of for those four years. And still today, I am the queen of packing my schedule so tightly that I often need multiple costume changes throughout my days. And there's part of me that likes being busy, that likes drinking up as much of life that life has to offer. But I know that when my busyness and perfection-seeking come from a place of fear or inadequacy or self-doubt, that they are no longer good or holy pursuits. I, like the ancient Israelites, have to practice believing that God has given me enough every single day. I have to actively resist the cultural default of wanting more, of thinking that I need to be more. I have to remind myself that I am a good enough pastor and spouse and student and parent and friend and person over and over again. This is my version of daily bread. I have to do this daily diligent work because why, while I so rarely feel like I am enough in my everyday, I don't want my 15-month-old daughter to grow up feeling that way. I want her to know that she is amazing and spectacular and brilliant and funny and miraculous and that if anyone thinks she is too much, then they can go find less. And I guess I want to know that about myself as well. My former head of staff at First Presbyterian Church in Haddonfield, New Jersey, the Reverend Bill Getman, is lovingly in attendance today to hear me preach. Working with Bill, I got glimpses of what practicing and believing in enough could look like as a pastor. Each week, I would ask him how his sermon for Sunday was coming along, and each week he would respond, it's going to be the best sermon preached in this building on Sunday. To which I would remind him that there was a lovely Korean congregation that would be worshiping in our chapel on Sunday afternoon, and he would say, ah, that's right. Well, it's going to be the best sermon preached in this building in English on Sunday. And then each week after worship, I would watch him as he took his lovingly crafted handwritten sermons and tossed them in the recycling, never to be read again. That's how unprecious he was about his words. 
watching his humor-filled humility and his non-anxious leadership for years has helped me to step into this fairly intimidating pulpit here today at First Church and to know that God can work with whatever I have to bring, ensuring that it is enough. I've seen some of the same embodiment of enough in my new head of staff here at First Church in Philadelphia. One of the first things that Barron told me about his work at FCC is that he's in the building just about every day, but that he doesn't do rush hour, a fact that delights me to no end, because Barron can craft these beautiful, thought-provoking sermons and warmly welcome visitors and skillfully empower congregant leaders each and every week. He does not feel like he has to manufacture an image of busyness for busyness' sake. He knows that he does enough, that he is enough. His omer is full without having to bear the soul-crushing Philadelphia rush hour traffic twice a day. And I feel empowered by that understanding. The truth is, believing in our own enoughness is pretty subversive in our more obsessed culture. If we actually believe that we are enough, that we have enough, how many unnecessary products will we stop buying? How many soul-draining activities will we stop attending? How many industries that proclaim a message of human inadequacy would we stop propping up? The truth is also that belief in God's abundance gets even more subversive when we embody it on a communal level. level. Take today's gospel text, for example. Jesus explains that the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. He found some laborers and agreed to pay them a denarius for their day's work. And then he found some more laborers at 9 a.m. and more at noon and more at 3 and even more at 5 and agreed to pay them, quote, whatever is right. At the end of the day, the landowner paid the laborers one denarius each, whether they had worked the whole day or part day or even just an hour. The laborers who had worked since early in the morning were understandably frustrated that those who had only worked an hour received the same payment as they had, and so they grumbled against the landowner. But the landowner explained, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree to work the day for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this worker the same as I give you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And then the landowner offers this most convicting rebuttal. Or are you envious that I am generous? <laughs> After growing up in a competitive and work-centered culture, God's generosity, God's abundance to all people can feel unfair to some of us. By giving each laborer the same payments, no matter their effort, the kingdom of God is creating an alternative economy where our value is not determined by what we produce. In God's kingdom, we do not have to prove ourselves to be deserving of enough. We all get the same omer of manna if we labor much or we labor, labor little. And while we may be tempted to restrict this parable to a spiritual matter, let us not forget that the God of all creation is not contained to the spiritual world alone. No, the Lord provides the Israelites for their physical needs. The Lord teaches the Israelites about enough 
not as an idea, but as a practical action. And the Lord expects the Israelites to create a society that is concretely distinct from the society where they were just enslaved. And so, yes, I, I see these scripture passages urging us to put on our finest Barbie-inspired I Am Canuck hoodies, but I also see them demanding that we ensure every person is treated as though they are enough, as though they are deserving of enough, a universal, basic enoughness. If we are going to transform our society into one that looks like God's kingdom, where people do not have to prove their value, it is going to take imagination as well as a daily and deliberate practice. I want to tell one more story, one that you all have heard several times. A little over 30 years ago, seven members of First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, seven members of this congregation embodied the work of the God of Enough by creating a food program for people who were sick with HIV and AIDS. They aptly named their organization MANA, believing that those who had been ostracized for their illness were deserving of enough nutritional value to wade through their own uncertain wilderness. It wasn't merely that the members of this church dared to believe that they had enough resources to share with others, and that was certainly part of it, but they dared to believe that this congregation had enough space in our building to make room for a new kitchen, enough people power to attempt to meet the tremendous need, and yes, even enough social capital to get others to care about entire populations who were being ignored. Gay men, Latinx families, people with substance abuse, and many others. Kay Kenzie will tell you the story of the first time she attended an Action AIDS event as a representative of FPC's Council for Community of Concern, and she will tell you about how two men who were living with AIDS would share their stories, and how shocked they were that a church would care enough about them. Members of this church have truly gifted us with a transformative and subversive and holy work. This is a powerful legacy they've given to us. Their experience moves us to ask questions like, who in our neighborhood and city today are being treated as though they are not enough? Who would be shocked that a church would care enough about them? And what does this congregation have enough of that it could share with others? Perhaps we have something like enough space to share with an affordable preschool program, or enough social connections to support persons coming out of incarcer incarceration, or maybe we have enough history and passion and resources to help combat violence against the Philadelphian trans community. From what I have learned about this congregation in the past few months, I believe that we have enough, that we are enough to change how devalued communities are viewed and treated in this city. But we must do that daily and diligent work of reminding ourselves that we have enough, we are enough. And over time, we, like the ancient Israelites, may come to believe this to be true. Amen.
having now confessed our sin, having heard God's word both read and proclaimed, having sung God's praises, let us now confess our belief. Let us say together what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. From God's generous abundance, we have all that we need. Indeed, we may have more than we need. So let us worship God with our tithes and our offerings.
from the gracious fullness that you have given us, O Lord, we dedicate this portion to you, asking that you would bless it and multiply it and use it, and that in so doing we might see your kingdom at work among us. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. As a family of faith, we acknowledge great joy sometimes, but we also acknowledge departures. And today, as we sing our final hymn, we are grateful to God for all that Jean Whitmer has done in this church and for her friendship. And we sing it, giving thanks to God for Jean, but also for John. Let us pray now. Holy God, as we contemplate the wonder of creation, we come face to face with our limits. You alone are eternal. You alone are holy. You alone are the source of all light and all good. And yet you have made this world for us and set us in the midst of its abundance. It is enough. And we are enough. Made in your image, we have nonetheless grasped beyond what you have offered us, not realizing that we are sufficient as we are. You made us exactly as you want us to be, not expecting us to make ourselves over again and again, but simply to receive the fullness you have given us, to abide in the wonder of being human, of being yours. As we contemplate the wonder of all that you have made, we come face to face with our calling, because you have called us to join with you as stewards of all that you have made. Where there is injustice, you call us to seek your gracious will. Where there is violence, you call us to work for peace. And as we contemplate the wonder of humankind today, we are nevertheless confronted with the reality of sin, we pause in solidarity with those grappling with the sin of war, and we remember particularly the people of Ukraine. And because you teach Christians to pray for our enemies, bring healing to those whose minds are twisted by perverse views of nationalism and grandiose schemes of violence. And likewise, we remember those the world over whose lives are upended by disasters, both natural and human-caused. We pray particularly for the people of Derna and Marrakesh as they begin putting their lives back together. Comfort those who mourn. Strengthen those who serve in the healing arts. Grant that the abundance you have given will make its way to those who most need. And while our hearts and our minds are rightly Focus today on your great big world full of people you love. We pray as well for those nearer to us who also cry out for your abundance. We pray for our own government as well as those of other nations. We pray for our own communities, for the city of Philadelphia and the places where we make our homes. Particularly we pray for those communities struggling with the scourge of gun violence. We pray for this congregation and its members and all who worship alongside us. Into all of these places, we pray for fresh infusions of your grace, that kindness may overcome meanness, 
that civility might displace rudeness, that those who suffer mental and emotional illness might find peace and comfort. Remind us always that your calling is upon each of us, upon our particular lives. You have given us life abundant in the hope that abundance would spill over into all the world. So strengthen us, guide us, hear our prayers that we offer in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake as we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
friends one more time. Now that I have a microphone on me, I want to invite you to fellowship hour, give love to Jean, and then also to join us for our gun violence conversation uh, at 12.30. If you haven't heard it enough today, let me, let me say it to you one more time. You are enough. And we are called to go out into this world and to ensure that all people are treated as though they are deserving of enough. And with this in mind, I charge you to go out in this day to be of good courage, to hold fast unto all that is good, to render unto no one evil for evil, strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the afflicted, and honor all of God's people, even as you love and serve the Lord. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with you this day and every day. Amen.